Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. And then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Terry Toppler, and this is the 431st show of ROI. Our guest for today's show is Dr. Thomas Lecoq, Associate Professor of History at Grandview University, who's going to talk about how bad medieval history feeds far-right fantasies. The history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Ed Broders. The show's theme song is Kayla's theme written and performed by Mark Zap Zapato, and our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. So to begin, welcome to the show, Thomas. We call well, Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. We call this first segment Farouk Danarwin, and our goal is to give our listeners a little background on today's subject. So can you start us off with some basic information on what qualifies as bad history? So history is two things. History is both the actual past, things that happened, the, the events that occurred, and by and large, that's what we're all excited about. But the way we encounter that past is through history as a discipline, right? We have scattered accounts of the past uh, written down or archaeological artifacts or artwork or kind of other things that we piece together to build an interpretation. And that interpretation is the way we actually kind of encounter the past in the general public. So there is history. We will not see that actual set of events. What we have are how people take the artifacts that we use and build stories with them. So there are lots of reasons why people do this, right? Some people just get fascinated with a time period. Some people happen to stumble upon a source and just can't let it go. And some people are pushing very particular messages. Now, every historian is a person. We have our own sets of kind of biases and concerns, and we shape the narrative of the past based on what interests us. Not everyone's interpretation, not everyone's interpretation is a good faith attempt, though. And I think we see, especially when talking about uh, Native American history, um, and, and this week, well, we had, you know, Indigenous Peoples Day, and in, in Iowa, it's still celebrated as Columbus Day, and all of a sudden, a huge host of pundits and commentators emerge to create bad history and myths that Native Americans were primitive and backwards and Columbus was blameless and things like that. And that's just a particularly easy, unfortunately, annual example of the way bad history can get constructed. Yes, thank you. Yes, that's very true about interpretation of history. And language is very important, too, in how we perceive things of the past. I know as a former or retired teacher librarian, my students would always ask, why do you always update the history section? And I said, well, the facts don't necessarily change, but our interpretation does. So tell me, what are some things that do shape the narrative of the past? Um, a lot of it has to do with kind of present-day concerns, right? Every new generation of historians uh, who are writing about historical events. I mean, sometimes you go into the archive and you encounter something that people have not talked about extensively before, and you are you can effectively talk about a new thing. Um, 
a librarian or an archivist has inevitably already discovered that, uh, and you are only able to find it because they've preserved it, but you can engage in new discourse. A lot of the time, what we do, though, is we take events that people already know about and have already discussed, and we bring new lenses to bear on the time period and the sources and things like that. And every generation, the concerns of the people doing the writing change based on, on the way we live now and the world around us and kind of changing cultural traditions. Um, it's not that something like environmental history is new, but you know, in a moment where we are grappling ever more with the crisis of climate change, uh, taking looks at the interaction of humans with the natural world over time has become more and more prevalent and in a good way. I tend to think that we're probably going to have a fairly large turn towards um, pandemic history in the aftermath of, of COVID-19 and the way that disease and uh, public health actually shape a lot of events and using that lens to view the past. That's a very kind of contemporary concern because of, of this horrific pandemic we're all going through. But that's going to influence the way historians look at the past and as kind of dominant themes weaving in and out. So this is, this is the kind of way that, you know, these things are known. There are events and there are sources, but the things that we find most important to talk about and to reinterpret the past through, that changes over time. Yes, in fact, just interesting, uh, we just saw our, a space flight and one of our most more famous uh, actors, William Shatner, coming down. And I think the most interesting part of that was his interpretation of what he saw and how he hoped that experience never faded uh, from his memory. He was just awestruck by it and its yeah. implications for today's climate. Absolutely. And also, of course, the fragility of our planet as well, um, as yes. he was oh. out there in space. So we have a lot more to talk about. Um, we are going to uh, please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. So this is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Terry Toppler, and this is the second segment of the show, referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Thomas Lecoq, Associate Professor of History at Grandview University. And we're talking about how bad medieval history feeds far-right fantasies. Our history busts for today's show are Brett Menard and Ed Broders. And Brett, as resident historian, why don't you start us off? Gladly. Um, <laughs> Thomas, can you give us sort of your top three or four ways that uh, the far right does not engage in what you would refer to as uh, good faith 
history, especially <laughs> with the medieval period? Only the top three. Okay, yes. Uh, I mean, you I can go that. top ten, you know, but if, I, I, I get the feeling that if I don't give you a number, we'll spend the next uh, 20 minutes just hear you listing, so. <laughs> um, okay, so, so one of the, I'm a crusade historian by training, and the way um, the far right uses and manipulates crusade history to try to bring it into the modern day is a very clear and egregious example. Um, the valorization of the Knights Templar with all the weird conspiracy theories that go around that, um, the idea of the Crusades as something to be championed and emulated, um, usually connected I mean, for, for fairly obvious reasons with huge amounts of kind of um, Islamophobic sentiment. This is one of the kind of more I think very, very clear examples that you're using symbols of religious violence to encourage contemporary religious violence um, and, and taking that symbolism and the kind of one line, what were the Crusades, a holy war against Muslims, divorcing it from all of the actual context and complexities, and then using that as a jumping off point to basically say, let's do this again. Um, a second one is the way that Vikings are used by... Um, far-right and white supremacist groups um, that takes kind of imagery of uh, Norse gods and Viking helmets and um, all of these kind of other, these other ideas that are these misappropriations um, to build a kind of Nordic, I mean, I, I think you can frankly say to build a, a Aryan kind of Nazi-inspired image of, you know, the most white, hyper-masculine visions possible uh, with all of the kind of very clear reasons why they do that. Um, there was a, a terrorist attack in uh, Portland several years ago where the, um, the, the terrorist, before killing people, was yelling out, Hail Vinland. Um, it, it becomes this imagery that gets used in a number of different areas to kind of create a, a white supremacist image of the past. Um, and then I guess the, the third one that comes to mind is, um, I think it was at Charlottesville that there were groups, with, there were people within the um, white supremacist marches that were using shields with kind of emblems of the Holy Roman Empire on it. Uh, the Holy Roman Empire, we always make the joke that it was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. Um, but using these symbols deeply uncritically in a way that feels very much um, like they're claiming the mantle of the First Reich in a very neo-Nazi kind of way. Um, and these are just kind of basic examples from the last couple of years. But it, it's taking these kind of emblems of the Middle Ages and turning them into white supremacist symbols in order to engage in contemporary political and religious violence. Thank you. Ed. Yeah, thanks, Terry. Um, <clears throat> Thomas, how much of, um, how, how big a battle is it um, for the revisionists, I'll politely call them, the white supremacy revisionists, um, it strikes me that they they don't have much to overcome in terms of their target audience having been properly educated in history, mm. that they're sort of going into a vacuum. Can, can you comment about that? 
Uh, yes. So I, I ask my students every semester what they've actually learned about the Middle Ages, and by and large, nothing. I mean, I'm just a, ge- a genuine void. They may have at some point in junior high had a week on medieval Europe, but we have... In our already diminishing history education, we tend to focus on more modern topics and certainly um, more American topics. I mean, this is the U.S. We, we, this, this makes sense. Um, so most of their knowledge about the Middle Ages, and, and I use knowledge loosely in this term, most of their kind of imagining of the medieval past comes out of pop culture. Right. I think we, we are now just far enough past uh, Game of Thrones heyday that it's no longer Game of Thrones, but it is things like the Viking t- Vikings TV show, or it is video games, or it is TV shows, or movies, or books, as opposed to actual history of medieval Europe. And so m- these things that they're getting their impressions of, right, not necessarily history, of, but like impressions of the Middle Ages, are things designed to entertain that are all equally problematic in different ways. And it does create this this kind of hole that it's really easy for uh, effectively bad actors to fill with, with other ideas. And I do think this is a very real problem in kind of the misuse of the past in a lot of areas that we have devalued history education or convinced people that it's, it's the rote memorization of facts as opposed to critical thinking and critical reading and analysis of sources, um, which is really the, the heart of what history is supposed to be. Thomas, I'd like to go back to something you mentioned earlier when you're talking about the framing of history by white supremacists, and you mentioned the word Aryan. Can you talk a little bit more about how that term is invalid and there is no such thing as an Aryan race? (laughs) Um, So it is... is, one of a multiplicity of debunked uh, historical racist concepts that come out of the 19th century um, that was used to describe people of a theoretical Indo-European heritage as a racial grouping. Um, the idea is that the there is this group, these Indo-European languages, and the concept, the kind of pseudoscience concept of the Aryan race, is that all of these common languages actually come out of um, a, a racialized grouping of people from somewhere, um, somewhere presumably very, very white. This becomes very popular in um, kind of pre-Nazi Germany and becomes part of the, the racialized structure within Germany to, to make an argument for um, the, the idea of the, this pure race of the original Indo-Europeans. Um, and I think that's, that's the area that we, we see the Aryan race kind of most commonly. It, it's, it's Hitler making references to this as the superior type of humanity, right? With all of the pseudoscientific backing that becomes part of this that then gets used for active murder. But it is, of course, not a real thing. The problem being that, you know, you can create... If you have uh, if you have groups of people and institutional backing, you can create false history. I mean, the Nazi Party spends an awful lot of time building effectively an alternative worldview uh, with pseudoscience and pseudoarchaeology in order to to craft a intellectual background for their contemporary goals, which are mass murder. 
Thank you. Yes, it's interesting how symbols from the past can be misused to create a certain kind of propaganda. I remember once when uh, we were looking at the Qingming scrolls, and one of our students asked why there was a Nazi symbol there. Mm. And we said, no, it's, it's not a Nazi symbol. It's actually a, a Buddhist symbol for prosperity. But Hitler used that symbol and inverted it. So, Brett. Yeah, so- oh, thank you. Go ahead, Thomas. I was going to say, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely that. And then that become, I mean, unfortunately, you can't simply go back to the time before where that becomes a symbol that has, that it has no other meaning. It, it, Hitler imprints himself upon the swastika and it becomes a symbol of Nazism, even though he's appropriating it from other cultures. Correct. Thank you. Brett. So there's a lot of talk about um, how medieval history is misinterpreted and misappropriated uh, by the far right. Um, What do you think are the most effective uh, things people are doing in the field currently to try and uh, counteract those misconceptions? I think the first step is, of course, acknowledging that there's a problem. Uh, And and it's unfortunate that it's taken kind of... um, contemporary alt-right marches to get to the point where I think uh, at least a plurality of the field, I I hope a majority, but I think at least a a good portion of the field recognize that we have a problem with people misusing medieval history and medieval studies for their own uh, aims. And so the first step is you you acknowledge that this is a thing and we need to do something about it. Um, This takes place within scholarly organizations and there's certainly pushback, but also opening up public conversations, right? Having kind of the, the... what might otherwise feel like an academic discourse only between other academics, bring that into the public sphere that, you know, we acknowledge that people are using these symbols and these languages and these words, and they're using them in ways that are really dangerous and debilitating. And we, we are having this discussion, and you should be aware that this is occurring. Uh, I think this, is, this has been clear uh, with the kind of discourse around uh, the term Anglo-Saxons that Mary Rambram Olm and others have kind of brought to the forefront in really important ways. Um, I think it also is very important that then you write for an audience that's not just the other people you know from conferences, right? I think there is a a fear that academic work is sometimes read by a relatively small circle of people, both because of the price of access, right? Academic books can be incredibly expensive and academic journals uh, are very restrictive, but also like the way you write an academic article is not necessarily the way you write uh, an article for a public audience. And I think we're doing a better job in writing books and public essays and kind of taking things that are important to know about the Middle Ages and about the ways people are misappropriating the Middle Ages and trying to present them uh, to a much wider audience. I know that um, Matthew Gabriel and uh, David Perry have been writing a large number of kind of public essays in a variety of forum on this topic. Um, their new book, The Bright Ages, is, a, is really a fantastic forthcoming reinterpretation of medieval Europe meant for a public audience. And I think work like that is incredibly important to try to bring a narrative to the public of the Middle Ages that goes against these ideas. Thank you. Ed. Yes. Um, Thomas, I, I don't know how this is going to happen, given that there's probably only a hand, relative handful of the population under 40 that subscribe to a newspaper. And I've seen surveys that talk about how young people get most of their political news 
from late night um, talk show monologues. So <laughs> how how does one reach those people? Well, you start by reaching the late night talk show hosts. And if any of them are listening, would like to give me a call. I would love to come talk about the Middle Ages on air. Um, I, I think I think this is this is part of the problem, right? We are finally acknowledging that we need to uh, we need to get engaged in this discourse. But the way I, when I, I mean I'm 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 under forty. I but even I when I think about how do I engage in this, I think about writing essays on public sites. Um, and that does reach some people, but I, I do not have the proficiency to be making informational TikTok videos. I don't know how to get onto late night TV shows to have this discourse. I mean, every time someone uses medieval just as a pejorative for backwards, as opposed to engaging with kind of substantive arguments, a medievalist somewhere dies, right, in a very tinkerable <laughs> kind of way. But there isn't... <clears throat> I don't know many any medieval historians who have the sway to actually convince, uh, you know, a John Oliver or Stephen Colbert to have this real conversation on air. Um, and I, I think I think this is, you know, media matters, and mediums of transmission matter, and the way kind of technology has changed the way people interact with knowledge. We are we are so far beyond behind the curve of figuring out how to engage with this. Whereas, you know, my students may be getting most of their information from from TikTok or Snapchat, uh, let alone from you know Facebook or Twitter or anything like that. Um, so I don't know. We're playing catch up, right? I mean, this is this is what it is. We're all playing catch up, not just on the issues that we need to be discussing, but also the ways in which we can actually connect with the public. Thomas, one of the things you mentioned earlier about were some very popular shows like Game of Thrones um, that, even though it's a fantasy, it uses a lot of medieval uh, imagery, I should say. So yes. are there any films that you would recommend that you feel rather represents medieval history more accurately? Oh, man. Um <laughs> that represent it accurately no, <laughs> no. Uh, i i i will say and this is this is going to sound crazy but my favorite medieval film the only one i watch without getting kind of frustrated at any point is is the 2001 heath ledger movie a knight's tale which mm does not pretend to be presenting a pure Middle Ages, but brings back some of the kind of light and color uh, and joy of some of these things and does not focus on the idea that to be medieval means to be dirty and, you know, with a sword in your hand, murdering someone and everything being the worst possible world that it is. Um, and there's something about the kind of joyfulness of this film that even... Again, it's representing, uh, vaguely representing a Knight's the Knight's Tale from Canterbury Tales at best. But it's it's a movie that at least I think brings out some of the spirit of the Middle Ages better than other things. The other the other one that comes to mind as a kind of interesting interesting at least representation of the Middle Ages is Thirteenth uh, Warrior, which is also uh, I mean it's, it's a fan it's a fantasy film. It's it's the visualization of, of Michael Crichton's um, Eaters of the Dead, the adaptation of Beowulf combined with uh, a brief snippet of an actual historical account, even Fadlan's uh, encounter with the Volga, um, the Volga Rus. But even so, it at least gives, gives a flavor of a different type of Middle Ages than I think so many of the movies that I see nowadays do. 
Yes, I would agree with that. And also the way it represented the, uh, the Islamic culture as well. Yes, yes. Well, and, and the idea that like people could encounter other cultures and not have the only reaction be violence. Right. Yes. There could be intrigue and there could be interaction. People learned languages. People adapted to new environments and new customs. Um, and I feel like, I, you know, I, I think post-2001, the kind of era of gritty, dark realism that entered so much of our media um, infiltrates your medieval movies. And it makes them kind of um, feeling very contemporary in, in, for particular reasons. But the idea that everything is dirty and violent and hostile um, says more about now than it actually says about the medieval world. It is customary that we give our guests the last word on our show. So, Thomas, why do you think debunking myths about medieval history is relevant in today's world? I think that we like to assume that modernity is the only time period uh, where things have ever been good. And we do disservice to both humanity, uh, to, to our species, and to a vast a vast swath of the population by assuming that only the now can ever be good. Um, the medieval past is a rich tapestry of lived lives, of interesting stories, of trade and communication and connection across the globe, um, with some important caveats and oceans in the way. Um, and those stories are worth learning, and those people are worth learning about and their lives and cultures are worth exploring, not just this modern moment. And to see it only used for these kind of very malevolent modern reasons is both heartbreaking and something worth fighting. When we come back, we will wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA. St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 431st show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is entitled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapp Zapital. My name is Terry Toppler, and we would like to thank our guests, Dr. Thomas Lecoq, Associate Professor of History at Grandview University, who talked with us about how bad medieval history feeds far-right fantasies. The history buffs for today's show were Brett Menard and Ed Broders. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. So we would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basoto proverb, Katso Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. 
good night.